Good morning. If we can turn to John chapter 2, we're going to be looking at that this morning. And we're going to be taking up a C word that I think most of us don't like. At the beginning of the year, every year that comes around, we have things that are uh, declared that are called New Year's resolutions. And these New Year's resolutions involve changing something in your life that you don't like, that you want to uh, improve on. And one of the number one things probably people like to change on is I'm going to start working out. I'm going to start, I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to be healthier. I'm going to be this. But this stuff always requires a change. And when you change, that means you're disrupting the normal flow of your, your life as you know it. So what that means is somewhere within your busy schedule, you got to work out the time to go to the gym. And usually when it comes to me, I can think of a thousand better reasons why not to go than to go. And especially if you get up in the morning and you're drinking your coffee and you think you're going to work out and then you just keep drinking coffee and you just sit there and you're comfortable and then you say, you know what, uh, I'll go to the gym tomorrow. I'll work out tomorrow. But this C word is what we're going to talk about. And um, we're going to look at the, the uh, wedding at Cana in which our Lord Jesus Christ attended. And he's going to usher in something. And one of the things he's ushering in is this C word, a change in people's lives. That when you come in contact with the Lord Jesus Christ, it's impossible not to change. It's impossible to not reflect who he is when you spend time with him. And as Christians, if you've come this morning and you come to any type of church or open up your Bible, you're realizing that you need a change in your life. You're realizing that you're lacking in some sort of area in your life. And what we know it as is sin. We have sin in our lives. And if we were to continue in the ways of the world and of sin and follow that pattern, then that leads to destruction. And there's no true happiness in sin and in the world. So we all need change. We all come to this gathering, this fellowship, because we're all sick people going to the emergency room in order to get help. And we're all needing to be changed. And this change that we want to take place is to be conformed more to the image of Christ. To look at God, to reflect who he is, and for our character, our attributes, and everything we are, to change from our worldly ways to the ways of God. This takes place through a renewing of the mind and so forth. But what I want to look at this morning, and what we're going to look at, is a very simple story but it has a profound effect, and it's one of the first in the Bible of the miracles in which the Lord Jesus Christ is going to perform. There's a first, and there's also a last in which we'll look at of something that takes place in here, that uh, this tremendous miracle that took place had a lasting impact on the disciples that were there and uh, made an effect on them. Let's read this story. It's, it's John chapter 2 and beginning in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now, both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now, there were set there six water pots full of, uh, excuse me, 
Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now, and take it to the master of the feast. And they took, <clears throat> and they took it. And when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to them, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious God, Father, we thank you for this simple story, Father. It's so simple, yet it's profound, and it's here to teach us something, Father. So we just pray that your spirit will lead us into all truth and guide us, that we'll understand uh, this miracle and the sign that's given and what it truly means, Father. Lead and guide our study. In the name of Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. An overview of this story real quick is there's a, a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Now, Cana of Galilee is just northeast of Nazareth, of where the Lord was uh, uh, raised at and where he was from. And it's up in the Galilean area. So there's a wedding there, and the mother of Jesus went, and as well as Jesus and his disciples went. And during this wedding feast in, in, in Jewish times and during this biblical days, a wedding actually would last, it could have, last up to seven days long. It could go a, a period of time of where they celebrate. And usually the traditional wedding was as the husband goes and he prepares a place for uh, his wife. And then he goes and gets her and then they come back and they have a celebration that lasts a week long. of festives of where they drink wine and eat food and, and everything else. And they really celebrate this, in, in getting this uh, coming together as husband and wife. So Jesus was invited there, and, um, as well as the disciples, and his mother was there. Some believe that this is a, probably a relative of, of, of uh, Mary's and Jesus because of her being in the know of what's going on. Um, at least anything, it was a close friend that they know. Cana, they don't know exactly where the location is, they just believe it's somewhere northeast of, of Nazareth, a little town. And we'll find out later, Nathaniel, one of the disciples, was from there. So they run out of water, and Jesus does a very simple thing, but yet profound, and he sees these water pots that are there that are for the purification process for the Jewish uh, customs of cleanliness, and he goes and says, fill up the water pots, and then he goes and he transforms this water into wine. He transforms this water into wine, changes it. And then he goes forward and he says, take this wine. He tells the servants to take it to the master of the feast. Some translations might say governor, but he's the run running the feast. And then he tastes this wine and it's profound. It's the sweetest wine he's ever probably tasted in his life. And the normal custom was is that you would serve the, the superior wine first. And then as they drank and they were eating and so forth, then you mix in and you bring in the, the less expensive wine. Uh, for them to finish off, but he makes a note of this, and he uh, says, man, you've kept the good stuff till the last, which is profound, and he actually will call the bridegroom over and discuss this with him. Now, one thing with this wedding is we don't know who the bridegroom is. We don't know who the bride is. We don't know 
the parties involved. But this profound miracle has such an impact on the disciples there, in which we'll look at, is that the Apostle John, when he writes this, he's going to record it down. So that's in a nutshell what's happened. So now we're going to dive a little bit deeper into the story. And we want to look at some of these details and how it uh, can affect us and what we can glean and learn from it. To understand the Gospel of John, we've got to look at verse 11. Verse 11 says, This, the beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the very first miracle that we believe Jesus performed. Now, there are some extra biblical writings that some have said in the childhood that he did miracles, but John preserves this, and he says, no, this is the beginning of signs or miracles that Jesus did. And this is the very starting point of, of what took place. And the purpose of these miracles is to show forth his glory, to manifest that he is the Son of God, and that he has come forward to make a change and to usher in change, and that is to offer forgiveness of sins, to offer eternal life to that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And he's going to make this very first miracle a significant miracle, and which is going to point forward that he is God in the flesh and that he can turn water into wine. And the question is, is what can he turn you into? How can he change your life? How can he transform you? Because he's ushering in the new covenant. And we're going to look a little bit deeper. And the greater picture is, is that Judaism couldn't purify him. Judaism could not save them. The law of Moses could not save them. But Jesus Christ can. And he has come to save those that are lost. And he hasn't come to reform Judaism. He hasn't come to reform the law. But he has come to fulfill it and establish the new covenant that is based upon grace and forgiveness of sins. And it's a tremendous thing, and this is what he's going to show forth, that those that come in contact with the Lord Jesus Christ, he will transform your life. He will bring about true change in you. And this is what our Lord Jesus can do. Now, John's mention of signs here in verse 11 says in the beginning of signs is a unique word and there's three distinct uh, Greek words in which are used of miracles and in Acts chapter 2 verse 22 I'll just read it for you it says men of Israel hear these words Jesus of Nazareth a man attested by God to you by miracles wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst as you yourselves also know these good works that are recorded of the Lord Jesus Christ and his miracles and everything he did, Peter is describing in three words in which are three different distinct Greek words of miracles, which is the Greek word dunamis, and it means miraculous or mighty power or sometimes translated mighty works. And this carries the idea of the, the miraculous power of what is, takes place in a miracle that God does. The other word is terrace, which is used of wonders. And this is the effect that a miracle would have on somebody. So when they see the miracle that, that takes place, and they'd say, for instance, they see the water turned into wine, they would, there would be amazement, there would be wonder, there would be awe of what the, the Lord Jesus Christ has done. And this is used of miracles as well to describe this. John uses a very distinct word. And he uses for miracles this word, semion, 
which means signs. It means a sign, mark, or token. An indication or a distinguishing mark is something that points past or is greater than the event that took place. It has, it's a physical event, but it has a spiritual, deeper meaning. An example of a sign would be when we traveled up to Yosemite and we came across, we saw the sign that says Yosemite National Park and it points you to go forward. How many of us stopped at the sign and said, oh, I'm in Yosemite, I'm here? Well, nobody just stopped at the sign. The sign was pointing towards somewhere for you to continue on and go. The same thing, this is the, the distinguishing thing that John does, and he doesn't use these other two Greek words to describe the miracle. He uses the word semion, which is signs, to describe the miracles in which the Lord Jesus Christ did through the Gospel of John. And the reason being is because these miracles are tremendous in themselves. But if you stop at just the miracle, you've missed the whole point. There's a greater spiritual meaning behind it. For illustration, when Jesus makes the lame to walk, that's a tremendous miracle. When he makes the blind to see, that's a tremendous miracle. It shows the mighty power of God. But how much greater is it that you who were dead in your trespasses and sins, you who were blind spiritually, he opens your eyes and spiritually enlightens you. You who were spiritually dead and seeking the ways of your own life, that he makes you who were lame in your trespasses and sins to walk in newness of life and to follow him. This is what John's emphasizing, is that these signs point towards something greater. You see, if, God, if the Lord Jesus Christ only heals someone of their infirmities, that natural healing, and he left them still in his sins, what profit would that be? Maybe there's another example. is How many of you would give up your infirmities, your sicknesses, your health, uh, you, you, everything you're struggling with to have a complete healthy body and be healed of all infirmities but yet pass up on eternal life. How many would give up eternal life to be completely healthy for this life but yet dying in trespasses and sins? This is where John's pointing is that there's a greater spiritual understanding and meaning behind what is taking place. <clears throat> When you had Jesus, it was recorded that he fed the 5,000. These 5,000 failed to grasp the understanding that the Lord Jesus Christ was the bread of life and that you come and you feast upon him and he completely satisfies you. He is the bread of life that has come down from heaven. Yet they were so infatuated with the mere fact that he took that bread and multiplied it that they just wanted to fill their bellies over and over again. They missed the fact that he was the son of God that he was the eternal one that is standing before him, the creator of the heavens and the earth. They missed this fact. And when they came and found him again, they wanted more food to feed their bellies. But John is going to point out that in that miracle, that's a sign that we should not stop at the miracle, but to go past and to look deeper into it. Matthew, Mark, and Luke use this word dunamis, which is the power to describe the miracles. John is very unique and uses this word sign to describe the miracles that Jesus did, because he wants us to look beyond. One of the things here also it says in verse 11, and the reason why he does these signs is this. And it says, and he manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. We're going to look at this a little bit more, but the disciples already believed in him. They already believed that he was the Messiah, the Christ, the chosen one that had come. But what happens is when you take 
When you come in contact with the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to grow in your faith, and you're going to see the mighty works of God that he does in your life, and your faith is going to grow and grow more and grow more. And this is what they had the effect on them, that when they saw this miracle take place, it transformed their lives. They saw the Son of God take the water and turn it into wine, and it had an effect on them. And what John's goal in this whole gospel is that he manifested his glory. And that this means, this is, the word manifest means to make known. That he is revealing who he is and how great and wondrous he truly is. Turn back with me to John chapter 1 and we're going to look at this. So we'll have a little greater understanding. If you were to continue to read through the book of John, the gospel of John here, you would see that, that he continually illustrates this this mere fact that he is the eternal one, the son of God, the giver of life. And he's going to expound this with the great I am's of the, of the Old Testament I am, in which Lord Jesus Christ is going to describe himself as I am the resurrection and the life. I am the bread of life. And he's going to continue, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the good shepherd. He is the eternal one standing in their midst, and they're beholding his glory. And let's look at this real quick. We don't have time to dig into it, but just to get an understanding of this miracle that took place that John is trying to describe as he goes through and writes. Verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now this Word is eternal. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Look at verse 9. This was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. Look at verse 13. Who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. This new birth, this way of salvation, this way in which the Lord Jesus Christ is ushering in eternal life is of God, and it's through God that offers this eternal life. Verse 14 is the climax here. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, Full of grace and truth. You see, this word in, 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 in verses 1 and 2, this one that was eternal, this one that created all things, created all things and made all things for himself, this word took upon that deity and became flesh. It means humanity. This is tremendous that God would send down his son to reveal who God is through his son. See, Jesus has come down and he says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. I and the Father is one. It is impossible for us to comprehend and grasp the depth and the beauty of who God is. We can use words, we can try to describe it. But now God has come and he's given his son in order to reveal to us who God is in all his glory and majesty that we can actually look upon him. The apostle would say, in, uh, the apostle John would write in 1 John, this is one that they've looked upon, they've handled, they've seen with their own eyes. 
They've talked to this individual, the Son of God, the Eternal One, in their midst. And John is overwhelmed with this great I am, the Eternal One that is in their midst, that he says here, and we beheld his glory. He saw the glory of God. They saw, he saw the miracles. He saw the good works. And he saw the ultimate love that he had for his people in which the Lord Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. That he died on the cross of Calvary for us. They, the Lord Jesus Christ has come and has given to us and has explained to us who the Father is and who is God is. And it says he is full of grace and truth. What a tremendous Savior we have that we come, that we study, that, that as our brother Bob mentioned last week, it's not just to merely know facts about the Lord Jesus, but it's to know him, that we can know him intimately, that we can know him in a very personal walk day by day to talk with him and to be intimate with him. He's not some distant God that has shoved us in the corner. He's a God that lives within us and that wants to commune with us. He wants to abide with us, to give us the strength to carry us on. He knows our infirmities. He knows our weaknesses. He knows everything about you in his totality, and he still loves you. It's not a sin he doesn't know that you've committed, an evil thought that, he, that you've, you've thought. He knows it all, and he still loves you, and he still wants to transform your life and to conform you into the image of Christ. What a tremendous Savior we have, that he has come to reveal the Father to us. Verse 15 says, John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have, uh, excuse me, and of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. This is a key verse to understand that this water turning into wine is something new. This is the grace and truth that's coming through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's something new. It's something great. It's something that transforms our lives. It's a doing away of the old law that could not save you, that could not justify you, that could not sanctify you. The Lord Jesus Christ can. Verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. So if you want to know who God is, you've got to know Jesus Christ. If you want to know who God is, you've got to spend time with the Lord Jesus. And the more time you spend with the Lord Jesus Christ, it is impossible, and I'll challenge each and every one of you, to spend time with Jesus Christ and not get changed. It's an impossibility. If you look in the face of Jesus Christ, you will be changed. He will transform your life. He will conform you to the image of Christ. He will make a difference in your life. And he loves you and he wants to walk with you. And the very first starting point is that he wants to save you from your sins. He who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ has life. He who does not believe in him does not have life, but the wrath of God abides on him. The condemnation you are facing if you are outside of Christ. But Jesus paid it all on the cross of Calvary so that we could have eternal life. And this eternal life in which he offers to you this morning, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life, it's not only the duration of 
existence with the Lord. It's not only that you possess eternal life right now and it'll go on forever and ever and ever. That's everlasting life. But it's the quality of life in which the Lord Jesus came to give us life and give us life more abundantly, to bring satisfaction in your life, that he can meet all of your needs, that the world you can try over and over again will never satisfy you. And this is one of the things we're going to look at here in the wedding of Cana is that they ran out of wine. Everything the world has to offer you in satisfaction is going to run out. You can try fame. You can try money. You can try chasing all your dreams of this world, and it will always leave you empty at the end. But the wine that the Lord Jesus Christ will serve up will bring satisfaction and quench that thirst and bring quality of life to you. Let's look a little deeper at this story in the last 15 minutes we have. It says, On the third day, verse 1, was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And John chooses not to record the word Mary, but uses the mother of Jesus because he's not going to put the emphasis on Mary, but on her association with her son, which is Jesus. So she's identified as the mother of Jesus. There's two names that John refuses to record in here, and that's one of them, is Mary's, and he, re, he doesn't record his own. Verse 2 says, Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Now we know that this wedding lasted probably close to seven days. It could have been shorter. I don't know what day they showed up on. I don't know if the third day has it do the third day of the wedding, or in the previous chapter it talks about on the next day, on the next day, and it ends up being the third day. But at this time, to get a little understanding of what's taken place and the little timeline, is that uh, at the beginning of the Lord's ministry, he went down and he met with John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist was down in the, in the uh, River Jordan baptizing, which would have been down by the Dead Sea, close to Jerusalem. So the Lord Jesus goes and he starts off his ministry by the baptism of Jesus. Immediately after that, he's then led away into the wilderness in which he's uh, is tempted by Satan, and we have that recording in, in, in uh, the other Gospels. Then what ends up happening, and John will pick it back up, is after those 40 days, he's going to return back down to where John is. And if we were looking to chapter 1, John is meeting with the, uh, the, ra the Pharisees and so forth that came out to meet him, and uh, actually it's the rabbis and so forth, the, the teachers, and he's discussing it, and Jesus is going to walk up. And he's going to walk by him, and he's going to identify Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And during that time, he identifies him. You have two disciples of John that's going to pick up and say, I'm going to follow this guy. And John the Baptist loses two disciples. These two disciples is none other but Andrew, Peter's brother. And we believe, and it doesn't record the name, but we believe it's John, the author of this gospel. So John and Andrew follow the Lord Jesus, and they... They go on, and then uh, Andrew, being the great evangelist he is, says, I'm going to get my brother and bring him. So what a great testimony. The first thing you want to do is bring in your family. And he goes and he brings in Andrew or uh, Peter, and Peter comes before the Lord. And this is all in chapter 1. We don't have time to read it. but So you have, we believe, John, Andrew, and Peter follow the Lord. The next day, it says that uh, the Lord, in verse 43, says, the following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. 
Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found the, the one that's the Christ. And he goes and gets Nathanael, another great evangelist. He goes and gets his good friend, brings him to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now understand that these guys are down south. These are, these are from the Galilean area. These are fishermen. These guys are out of their, their normal area, and they're down there because John the Baptist is baptizing, and they're looking for the Messiah. And now they've found the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, and they go and they want to follow him. So the Lord Jesus goes and he deals with Nathanael. So we believe at this point, these are the five disciples that are described in verse 2, that now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. At this time, he had invited, he had come across Matthew and a lot of the other disciples. So you have at least five. There, there could be an argument that perhaps John went and got his brother James and brought him along, but he's not mentioned here. So these five go along with Jesus, and they go back up, and Nathaniel's actually from Cana, so they're actually returning to their homeland of where they're very familiar with. So they go to this wedding with them. And it's an interesting thing that when they, either when they arrive or they've been there a little while time, the mother of Jesus comes up to the Lord Jesus and says, they have no wine. This is a common question that has uh, arisen, is why would Mary bring this problem to the Lord Jesus? Why would she bring this issue to him? Now, some commentators have surmised that at this particular time, through the, from the virgin birth onward, that she's looking for a time to vindicate herself, to sh for her, to, uh, the Lord Jesus, her, her, uh, to come forward and, and, and reveal his glory and to do a miracle and, uh, and for everyone to uh, see that he truly is the Messiah and to vindicate himself. Some commentators have surmised that. I don't believe that that's particularly the case. I think it's a simple case of discussion that's going on where if we've had an event here and we have potlucks and we have food here and we at one particular time, uh, Amy and Millie and them were cooking in the kitchen, they said we don't have enough food. Now they didn't come to me and say we don't have enough food or meat or something that they expect me to commit a miracle to transform it, to, to multiply the food but they're looking for an honest solution of something to take place. Uh, and I believe personally, I could be wrong, but this is a simple case of, if we've ever been to a buffet or anywhere else, that they run out of meat or they run out of prime rib, what's the first thing you say? You come back to the table and they're all out of prime rib. You're, you're like, uh, in, in this particular day and age, to understand wine, we gotta look at this a little closer because some have surmised that why would Jesus turn water into wine and then they go on this big thing about wine and everything else. The scriptures has actually a lot of stuff to say about wine. So let's take a little moment to, to look at that. Wine is a common beverage in the, in the Bible and it's from the days of Noah that we have a recording of drinking a wine all the way through. Wine is a gift from God. Wine, it comes through the natural process of grapes in which ferment and bring about alcohol. One of the major issues they had at this particular uh, time in biblical history is they didn't have the purification process in which we have to purify water. So a lot of times they went to wine and the alcohol within it, they would put in water and they would dilute it down and they would drink it in, in, that, in that form in order to be, uh, 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 they, don't, they didn't get any dysenteries or anything else from the water. So it, it was a common beverage and it was common that they would water it down and, and to avoid drunkenness and so forth. 
And it was a refreshing thing. And Nelson's Bible commentary says this, wine was also used as a common beverage or drink in Palestine, a part of the daily fare of the Hebrew people. Wine was a creation of the, of the Lord to cheer the heart, Psalms 104, 15, which says, and the wine that makes glad the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread which strengthens man's heart. And it's also was used as a gift given by him and not by Baal, Hosea 2, 8, talks about how they, he gave them the wine and they would go and offer it to Baal and so forth. So wine is a very common thing in the biblical days and it was given. It was also used as medicine. It says that it's used, it was used to revive the faint in 2 Samuel 16.2 and was suitable as a sedative for people in distress, Proverbs 31.6. Mixed with a drug, it was also used to ease suffering in which we know that the, the wine mixed with gall, they tried to offer the Lord Jesus on the cross. The Samaritan poured oil and wine on the wounds of the injured traveler. The Apostle Paul charged Timothy, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake. So there was tremendous medicinal value within wine in which the Lord had given us. You further research out wine. Wine was used in worship and in sacrifice. It was part of the drink offering. And we say it would pour out to the Lord. And it was added to uh, the meal offering and burnt offering and free will offering. So wine was a very common everyday drink in which they were part of it. It also was a significant trade item which they would trade, they'd pay taxes with and so forth. But the negative things, and the Bible's very clear and that the, is a sin, is it's not the consumption of wine but of drunkenness. The abuse of wine, the intoxication of wine in which it causes people to ruin their lives and causes them to act foolishly. It's kind of funny, our, our Son Brody and Ashton went to a, a birthday party. It was a kid's birthday party, but um, it's friends of Ashton's, and um, it was a friend of his dad's in college, so they were invited to there. And, and, and the one brother was drunk last night, and Ashton and Brody got to see what a drunk guy acts like. I guess someone, a little kid, six-year-old kid, squirted him with a squirt gun. He picked up the kid and threw him in the pool, and then everybody started getting on him. So then the two brothers end up with a physical fist fight right there in the middle of the party. He was drunk. This is what drunk people do. And, and Ashton and Brody, of course, is, they're sitting there playing their video game. All they're hoping for is that he doesn't crash into the video game console and break it. <laughs> but they see what the effects of alcohol does. David and I see it at work. The effects of alcohol on people's lives and how it, it ruins lives. It ruins families. Child abuse, marital abuse, spouse abuse. Everything comes from drunkenness to people losing their jobs to, to even suicide and so forth. Alcohol ruins lives. But because alcohol ruins lives, we have to separate out and we don't say, as some have done, and said partaking of wine is a sin and you shouldn't partake of it because the scriptures don't state that. And actually this morning in the breaking of bread, we partook of wine. And it's the drunkenness, it's the abuse of it. The other negative of wine is it can cause people to stumble. And the stumbling of it, of, of seeing other Christians in their liberty of drinking wine, and, and those that have struggled with alcoholism and, and so forth, other things can cause them to relapse and to go on there. And we're not to allow any food or drink to cause our brother to stumble. So we got to remember this when it comes to consumption of wine and alcohol to be discreet. And one, number one, not drunkenness. Number two, not to cause your brother to stumble. But wine is a very important thing and to study out through the scriptures. So what she's saying to them is that 
they have no wine, how does it do with the, the mere fact is wine speaks of joy is that they have no joy. And this wedding represents the world, that the world has run out of wine. Their, their, their celebration, everything they have has come to an end, and now it would actually be great embarrassment for this groom to run out of wine in this, uh, in this wedding celebration. So she's going to come to him and, and describe this and tell the situation to this, to the Lord Jesus. <clears throat> now, Jesus' reply to her has taken many commentators uh, off guard. And, and why is this such a harsh comment? What is the reason behind this? And I've read probably almost a dozen commentaries. And so if we're trying to understand and grasp the, 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 the reason why he replied this, Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not come yet. The word woman in the original, and I'm not a Greek scholar or anything else, I just read what people write, is that it's actually not a, a negative term, but it's actually a term of respect that you would maybe say ma'am or, or, or lady, but some people don't like the word term lady, but it's actually a term of respect. And what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not come. I don't have time to look at it real closely here, but I think it has to do with the Lord Jesus Christ has started his messianic ministry. He is about his father's business. And what he is making very clear to her is he is making a distinction between, I am no longer a child of yours, Mary. I am the Messiah. I have come to save uh, not only you from your sins, but the people from their sins. And my hour has not come, speaks of the cross of Calvary in which he's going to go and he's going to suffer and die. And see, it's like, Mary, mother, you, you can't bring these little trivial things to me anymore. We are distinct. We're making a distinction in our relationship that I am now going forward in this ministry. I've been baptized. This is what I'm about. I'm about my father's business, and this is where I'm going. And I believe this is the context of what he's saying to her. Yet still, our Lord Jesus probably looked into her eyes and said, okay, let me fix this problem for your mom. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. This is an interesting thing in verse 5, and you can make a note. This is the last of this uh, chapter. This is the last recorded words of Mary in the scriptures. Mary's no longer recorded of saying anything. But look at what her last words are. Where does she point you towards? Who is she telling you to go towards? Whatever he says to you, do it. She points to, you, to the Lord Jesus. It says, follow what he says, and we can take that true to each and every one of us. Whatever he says, Go forward and do it. So now what he does, as he says, he, he observes, and wherever this wedding feast was at, there were six water parts of stone, according to the manner of the purification of the Jews, containing 20 to 30 gallons there. So what he's going to go and do is he says to servants, go fill up that pot. And it's important to notice he didn't tell the disciples to fill up the pot, but the servants. He doesn't want any trickery or anyone that said there might be sleight of hand that his disciples might have slipped wine into it. But he tells them, but the, the importance in which John records here is that these water pots of stones was for the purification of the Jews that they would go about and, and, and wash their hands and they would, the filth of the world and if you came in contact with a dead body or whatever it was, unclean and they had their customs and everything else, they would come and wash themselves in that water pot. And you see, what he's showing forward here is that these water pots cannot cleanse you from the filth of the flesh. 
These water pots cannot truly clean you. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can truly uh, cleanse you from all of your sins. But these various washings and these various rules and regulations and ceremonies that they've come up with, he's going to show forth and he's going to take these water pots that were for purification, transform the water into wine inside there to show true purification comes from him. Not from these water pots. And this is something new that's coming in. These water pots can never make you clean. You could wash in there daily and never get you clean. Only Christ can fully cleanse us from sin. Revelations 1.5 says, To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And if we were to look at Colossians chapter 2, you'd get various things of how these ceremonies cannot save and that they cannot have, they do not have any regards to uh, the value and, and against the indulgence of the flesh. So the, 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 the water is taken out of the pot. It's taken to the, the, the master of the feast, and he tastes this wine. We're out of time, but this miracle was the very first one that was taking place, and it's the first of many that are going to follow forward. And I, I believe that the, the emphasis that is here is that not only Jesus has the creative power, but Jesus is the source of life. Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is ushering in something new. Christ is all sufficient for us. And in closing, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You might have tried to satisfy your life with the world. You've given the world a shot. Maybe you're not saved this morning and uh, you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. There's never been a time in your life where you come to God and receive that forgiveness of sins. Or maybe you're walking with a, maybe you are a Christian, but you're backslidden. Maybe you're a, a Christian and you're, and you're walking with your foot in the world and you're dangling on both sides, but you truly are miserable and don't have true satisfaction. The Lord Jesus Christ brings that true satisfaction. He will bring true change in your life. He will transform your life. And I challenge you this morning to give the Lord Jesus Christ a try. He will take your life from water and turn it into wine so that you walk in newness of life and with true satisfaction of life, he can satisfy. Let's close in a word of prayer. Gracious God and Father, we just thank you so much for this miracle that is recorded that had such an impact on the Apostle John that he would record it. Father, he is truly the word that has come down and dwelt among us, Father, and we truly have looked into the scriptures and beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten Son of God. Father, we just pray that each one here, that you'll speak to each and every one of us. Father, whatever area in our life that needs correcting, that, that needs to, to, to flush out, that needs change. We pray, pray that you'll bring it about, Father, and that we'll see you afresh and walk with you afresh and know and bring all our problems and everything we have to you and seek you out, Lord Jesus, as a true satisfaction and all sufficiency in Christ. Thank you for everything. Bless this day. In the name of Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.